the the anger of God against sin is intimately intimately connected to the idea of His holiness. The basic definition of holy in the Old Testament, Kadesh, is something completely other and different from fallen humanity, which is what God is. When there's a violation of his holiness, ha has to punish that, because if he didn't punish that, he wouldn't be the holy God that he is. That he, is. he would be endorsing and participating in our sinful rebellion. everybody and welcome back to the good theology podcast such a joy to have you all joining us and uh hope you're having a great day and you'll be listening to this i suppose uh well if you listen to it when it comes out during holy week hopefully your holy week has been beautiful and reflective and uh we are going to talk today about easter and about atonement uh, which I'm excited uh, to discuss with my co-host, David Campbell. David, how are you today? Not too bad, thank you. How wonderful. Done my taxes, my brain is not operating at 100%. Blessing. <laughs> well, it's a, that's just a, a warning. Oh, man. Death by taxes, honestly. It's about it. Yes. Um. Well... Before we jump into it, let me just throw out a uh, an ask to everyone. If you haven't already, please do go subscribe to our YouTube channel, Good Theology. You can also sign up for our newsletter as well. Um, I believe I don't even know our own website. I think it's vastpodcast.io, vastmedia, vastpodcast.io. That takes you to our website. I don't know if that's the main uh, URL, but you can go there and sign up for our newsletter that we send out every week. It's short, it's quippy, and it links you to all the shows that we have going on. Uh, and we have quite a few now under the vast network. Of course, Good Theology is uh, the best and the brightest, wouldn't you say, David? Well, who am I to disagree with you? <laughs> okay, let's talk about Easter, uh, Good Friday. And uh, right now, all of the Christian world is thinking about the most important weekend in human history and will come to church. Thousands and thousands of people will come to church, many of whom do not normally do so uh, because this weekend is, I mean, significant. It's obviously uh, a ridiculously um, underperforming word when it comes to describing what Christ accomplished over the course of those few days. I thought it'd be uh, interesting and helpful for people to have a discussion around the subject of atonement. How exactly did Christ reconcile us to God? How exactly did the forgiveness of our sins take place and the relationship with God get restored through his death and his resurrection? There are all kinds of theories as to what Christ accomplished uh, I, for one, believe that multiple things took place through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, not just one thing, uh, but there certainly are some prevalent themes that are all throughout the Scripture. Uh, I want to talk about three of them, one being something related to substitution, 
typical uh, phrase that's found uh, in evangelical circles is uh, penal substitution. He paid the penalty for us. Another being Christus Victor, and that Christ uh, was victorious over our sin and over death and over the devil. Uh, and then the third one being moral example, that through Christ's path of humility to the cross, uh, we, are so, uh, we ourselves learn uh, how to live. And so let's elaborate on those three. We can begin with substitution, and then I want to wrap it all up with a fourth one that I have become fascinated with, which I feel like ties all of these together. So, David, you're the smarter one out of the two of us, so I'm going to begin by giving you the opening remarks. Let's begin by talking about the theory and the theme of substitution, something that is undeniably present in the biblical text. Oh, whether I'm <clears throat> smarter or not, it's debatable, but I'm certainly older anyway, so I've kicked around longer and had more chance to learn stuff. Um, I, I think that throughout, you know, the history of the church, it's kind of going right back to the apostle Paul. Um, there's no doubt that, uh, scripture teaches, uh, substitutionary atonement, penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, it's, you know, in Romans chapter three, Paul says that Christ was a Greek word is hilasterion, a sacrifice, a technically a propitiatory sacrifice but that of course is it's born from the um it's borrowed from the language of the old testament mercy seat where the sacrifice took place and the idea is that christ is the lamb of god and this is something that goes back to the days of abraham and prophetically that uh the lamb was sacrificed at passover uh and a lamb was sacrificed on Mount Moriah with Abraham and Isaac, but then moving through history into Passover, the lamb was sacrificed so that the Israelites would be set free and, and not carry the penalty of judgment that came upon the Egyptians. And uh, and then Christ himself is the fulfillment of that that prophetic foreshadowing of a physical lamb. He is the lamb of God. And... Um, who takes away our sin because, as in the Old Testament system, the anger of God against human sin is propitiated or satisfied by the sacrifice. So the sacrifice has to be made. Now, you know, the Bible uses human language and language and, and concepts to, de to describe it. So when we talk about the anger of God, it's not like, you know, uh, you've just... Uh, looked at your credit card bill and flown into a rage at how much money you spent right last month in you know on expensive clothing boutiques in Pasadena, which you you probably have. But anyway, it's <laughs> um, you know or or road rage or something like that. You know that's all we're talking about. God's anger is not flippant. God, God is not angry in that sense. God is God is angry against sin because of the violation of the perfect loving creation that he'd made and uh and it has to be dealt with uh and the only way of dealing with it is by punishment because we have incurred judgment for what we've done in rebellion against god and the beauty of the of 
the sacrifice of Christ is and uh, the atonement is that Christ stepped into the gap on our behalf, paid the price on our behalf. That's what we we observe and celebrate and are so grateful for at this season of the year. In particular, though, we should be every sun, every every day and every week week of the year. But we're grateful for the fact that Christ, who did not have a debt to pay, uh, but went to the cross to pay our debt. He took our debt upon his sinless shoulders, and he bore the anger of God on his sinless shoulders, the anger of God against sin, uh, so that we could be accepted in Christ and saved. And if you take this idea, uh, the, the anger of God against sin is intimately, intimately connected to the idea of his holiness. Uh, God's holiness, the basic definition of holy in the Old Testament, Kadesh, is something completely other and different from fallen humanity, which is what God is. And so when there's a violation of his holiness, uh, then uh, God is, 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 has to punish that because if he didn't punish that, he wouldn't be the holy God that he is, that he is, he will be endorsing and participating in our sinful rebellion. And so Christ, who did not participate in our sin, sinful rebellion, but took our flesh upon himself, uh, entered this world to take the punishment on our behalf. And that's what Paul is talking about in the third chapter of Romans, where he says that the sins that went beforehand had, had not had been overlooked, so to speak, by God. I mean, God knew that they were there, but God could have fried the world back in those days, but he deliberately chose not to because he foresaw his plan in Christ um, that, that he was going to initiate in the fullness of time. But God has to be just, um, and the justice of God required him to take the punishment out, if not on us, then on Christ. And that is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31, and specifically right. in verse 25, where he talks about Christ being this propitiatory sacrifice, which demonstrates the justice of God, that God is holy and just, because he has not, he, he, his overlooking of the previous sin was not because he was tolerating it or endorsing it, it was because he had a plan in place right. to atone for that. He was sovereign over it and us. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I think that's that's so well put. Typically I find that uh the only way you can really push back on that is if you're unwilling to admit that humans are more than victims. And when your view of humanity is that purely we are victims of evil done to us of sin placed upon us, um, then you have a hard time with the fact that our sin comes with penalty. Rather, you would think that we what we need is purely liberation or freedom. And we do need freedom because we are indeed uh, sl slaves to sin. But we are not only victims, we are also complicit in the sin. Um, and so... Therefore, we are also criminals, and uh, our sin earns the wages of, of death, Paul says in Romans. I, I thought also of Galatians uh, in 3.13, where it says, 
uh, or sorry, 3.10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As, as it is written, curses everyone who does not continue to do everything, everything written in the book of the law. And then in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who is hung on a pole or a tree. And so uh, Christ becomes our substitute and he pays the penalty. And that accomplishes something for us. I think also, too, of what God says to Adam and Eve uh, about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And as I understand uh, as I understand that word die there, the death that it's speaking of is, is not like a, uh, I guess I would say like an organically occurring death. It's, uh, it's penalty. It's, um, it's death that comes because of judgment. Um, and so that's a fact that I think we have to face off with, especially today in our, in our very commonly occurring victim mentality in the West is that we are, we are not simply victims. We are also, let me, let me say this, that the problem is not purely external to us. At the end of the day, ultimately the problem is internal to us in our hearts. And as sinners, we are deserving of death, but because God loves us, uh, he saves us from the death uh, that we have brought upon ourselves. Right. And, and the thing is that you can't receive, I mean, the grace of God is a wonderful thing. The grace of God is God's unmerited, uh, unconditional, infinite love that he's lavished upon us. But you can't receive the grace of God without first acknowledging that you need it. And if you think that you're not complicit, if you think that you're not a sinner, then in your own opinion, really, you don't need the grace of God. And uh, if we say we have no sin, we make God a liar. I think John said that that's true, but it also is becomes a, a, a wall, a barrier that we put up against being able to receive the grace of God. We choose to live in our own imagined self-righteousness. Uh, we don't really appreciate uh, the depth of our sin, and, and therefore we don't understand grace because grace, the depth of grace, is God's wrath on my sin, richly deserved punishment that, 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 I, that I should have received, that that has been taken by Christ and he has given me a whole new life. And now I enter by grace into that life and live by grace every, every day by the power of the Holy Spirit. But unless I acknowledge the depth of my sin and rebellion, I can't claim that amazing prize. And the worst thing about I've just been thinking about this because I'm speaking at a church tonight uh, out, uh, near Toronto uh, on a subject related to this. Mm -hmm. um, but we, we can't, uh, you know, appropriate the grace of God in our lives as long as we think that we have any merit in ourselves. And that's why this confusion of whether you want to call it legalism or moralism, it, it seeps into church thinking into our Christian thinking um, because it's it's out there in the world and we have to keep reminding ourselves that moralism doesn't work because moralism implies that I'm partly moral to begin with and I'm not I'm completely immoral that's what the Bible says uh, and so uh, I need the grace of God 
And the worst thing is when churches degenerate into legalism and moralism, and people are just trying to keep an external set of standards, and there's no internal life because the grace of God is gone, and that's something we have to really guard against. Yeah. That's good. I think there's some more that we can say about that that perhaps will come up uh, as we continue on into Christus Victor. So Christus Victor is uh, an atonement theory um, that when I think of it, I think of Colossians chapter 2, uh, verse, well, let's begin in verse 13. When you were dead in the sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So there's this theme there of Christ's triumph, of his victory, not just over our sin and death, but also over the powers and the authorities, the uh, evil spiritual beings um, that, that are themselves uh, perpetually sinful, uh, the most notable of which, of course, is, is Satan. And so Christ has triumphed over Satan through his death and through his resurrection. Um, I guess what I would say here is as substitutionary atonement deals with the penalty of sin, Christus Victor deals with the power of sin. And both are related to death. The penalty of sin is death, but the power of sin is also death in that uh, sin leads to our death. And that's the power that it holds over us, the power that we can't break free from. And this is the uh, enslavement part of uh, of our sinfulness. And so we need somebody to, to free us, to gain victory for us. And Christ gains that victory uh, on our behalf. I would even say that he gains that victory as us, um, which I'll say more about when we get to uh, the final theme and theory that I have on, on my mind. But that's Christus victory, as I understand it, in a nutshell. Uh, anything that you would add to that? Well, I, I, I think that, uh, I, again, I go back to Romans, and where Paul lays out the basis of the atonement in chapter 3, and then in chapter 4, he deals with a possible objection uh, regarding Abraham uh, and demonstrates biblically that Abraham wasn't someone who was righteous in his own sight. He was actually the father of faith of those of us who were justified in Christ. But then in Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, that's Paul's exposition of the Christian life. Um, uh, and so uh, he, you know, he who is righteous, I mean, in Romans 1, 16, it says, he, uh, he who is righteous by faith shall live. Uh, in in if you translate the the verse I think the best way, and if you do that, he who is righteous by faith shall live, um, uh, which is sometimes translated, often translated, the righteous shall live by faith. But if the Greek can be translated, he who is righteous by faith shall live, means the same thing. But the neat part of it is that's the theme statement in Romans one sixteen of the whole gospel, and then. The he who is righteous by faith is what Paul expounds in Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4. And the shall live 
is what he expounds in Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. And that is uh, the consequences for the Christian life of the atonement, of what of the righteousness that we have in Christ. Now, the reason I say all that is to say that in the midst of that, uh, in chapter 6, Paul talks about um, uh, the, 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 the concept of power, dominion, victory over sin. And, you know, that's a whole involved topic. We, 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 we understand, obviously, that we're not completely sinless, that it's a battle. But it all boils down to the fact that because of the atonement, uh, the battle against sin, which previously was hopeless, now we have the power to fight back by grace. And so the power over sin, the power over death, over the powers of hell, all of that is a consequence of what uh, Christ did for us on the cross, which we express in terms of the atonement. So I would see power over sin and the demonic powers as being uh, a consequence of uh, a benefit of, however you want to look at it, the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ in the cross. So uh, it's not a separate thing, it's a consequence of it. As a result of that, we now have the power of God released in our lives to fight back against sin. Yes, yeah, so and, you would say, and this is a conversation that Yes, and this is a conversation that happens in uh, in theological struggles all the time. What is the basic truth of the atonement? What what begets what? And so, in your view, uh, penal substitution begets Christus Victor. Um, and yes, that's the way. But I I don't mean to be kind of smart about this, but that's the way the fall expresses it. See, and I'm and this is part of we've had discussions about systematic theology and biblical theology. This is why. Systematic theology must never stray far from biblical theology because people come in with a set of ideas and impose them on the text. Whereas I think our job as uh, as faithful scholars of the Word of God is to start with the text of Scripture and to uh, you know bring our, our our any ideas that we have concepts we have have to flow out of the actual text of Scripture. We have to be very careful not to impose them on the text of Scripture just because we have a smart idea about something. So I think if you, the Romans is a very, very carefully argued uh, piece of literature, a uh, piece of theology, and, uh, and, and Paul starts with the basic fact of our sinfulness right. in Romans 1.18. Which is willful. The Gentile world, the Jewish world, no one is righteous in the sight of God. And then uh, in chapter 321 to 31, he says, but this is the answer God has provided. Then he deals with it at a Jewish objection to that in chapter 4. And then he goes on to give the consequences of the atonement in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. In a, in a kind of a balanced way, he talks about reconciliation to God in chapter 5, power over sin in chapter 6. He talks about... Uh, the uh, the uh, Christian and the law in chapter 7, he talks about the Christian and the Holy Spirit in chapter 8. And you have to take the whole of those four chapters together, but they're all consequences of what Christ did on the cross. 
Yeah, that's all really good. I wonder if too you could say that Christus Victor even is linked to um, not just the resurrection of Christ, but also the ascension of Christ. Because in his ascension, for example, with uh, Ephesians chapter 1, uh, this incomparably great power for us to believe, the same mighty strength that God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand uh, in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power, dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So part of Christ's victory is actually in his ascension and is in his enthronement, like Psalm 110. Um, he rules in the midst of his enemies and he is uh, uh, in power over them um, even to this very day. And even though he allows them certain latitude with the way that they act, their day of judgment uh, is, is fixed. And so that's also a sense of Christ's victory. Uh, it comes in his return to uh, the Father, with that, which I think is a, a fascinating um, re reality. And then even in uh, Philippians 2, obviously with um, this uh, famous uh, hymn, I suppose, uh, about Christ and his humility and uh, how God has exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name of every name that's part of his victory uh, as well. And I think, you know, going back to kind of your sequential argument of um, of penal substitution into uh, Christus Victor and, and so on, I, I think you can even take it a layer deeper and begin elsewhere, uh, but we'll get to that at the end of the podcast. The third is a uh, moral example. Um, and I mean, gosh, regretfully, I don't even know if I can uh, recite in any kind of... Um, super thorough way what this theory says that's, that's how uh, that's how much well, of a dumb i am but essentially it's yeah it's uh in i mean we all would agree that jesus was an example for us that's self-evident and you know we're to follow in his footsteps that's self-evident from scripture but the moral example uh uh theory or concept of the atonement generally is, is something that liberal theology has adopted uh well, which is Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yes, which is to say that they don't really believe that Christ was God. They right. just believe that he was a very good man, maybe even the best man, but he was a very good man. And he, he his, his power was in the power of example, which we then follow. And a lot of liberal theology in the end, not all of it, but a lot of it boils down to that, in fact, in, in practicality. Um, but if you don't understand that Christ was God, and came to earth as man, and that's the incarnation, and he fully God, fully man, and he suffered and died for our sins, then there's no power in the work of Christ. Yep. But there's no power for us in, we don't have any power to follow Christ because we're lost in trespasses and sin. So the that whole theory depends on the fact that, or depends on the, you know, validity of the viewpoint that human beings actually are not fallen, that they're actually, you know, quite often fairly decent people that have the power to do good within them. And all we need is some bit of an uplift and uh, somebody to follow and everything. And th that was the whole, you know, the Victorian idea of education will bring, bring progress and enlightenment. And, you know, liberal theology flourished in that environment, 19th century, social Darwinism where everything was going to get better and better. And 
uh, you know, until we hit the 20th century and everything fell apart and we found out uh, once again. Communists and Nazis exist. And education doesn't necessarily. I just read the other day that Russians are amongst the most highly educated society. And yet look at the mess that the, the country is in. Uh, as yeah. well, you know. I'm sure there are like uh, more refined ways to say it, but as I understand the moral exemplar, more ex example uh, theory is, is essentially Christ teaches us how to live. Um, and that is true. Christ does indeed teach us how to live. But as you say, if that is our is that if that is the fullness of what we understand Christ to have given us, then we are not saved a and nothing is atoned for <laughs> and reconciliation to God, that does not happen um, because we are powerless to produce the holiness um, for which we were created. Our our sinful nature runs far too deep. Uh, and so I think we should absolutely affirm moral example. Yes, uh, we should follow Paul as Paul follows Christ. Uh, absolutely. But there has to be the supernatural uh reality of his Holy Spirit taking up residence in us who produces that holiness and who helps us to be like Christ, um, who does the conforming, Romans 3.27, is it, uh, into the image of the Son. Um, and so, absolutely, more example, totally, uh, but certainly not just that. And if we were to only have that, then we're no different than uh, a secular humanist at the end of the day. Okay, so here's uh, something that we've talked about a little bit in the, um, in the past when we were going through the Incarnation of God book by John C. Clarke and Marcus Peter Johnson. Um, and I think they do a really wonderful job, both in that book and in um, the sister book to it that Marcus Johnson wrote. I think it's either called One with Christ or Union with Christ. Uh helping people to understand that at its most foundational level, we are atoned not just because of what Christ accomplished on Easter weekend, but that all of Christ's life as a man was atoning. And so uh, the, the atonement theory there holistically would be his vicarious humanity that it wasn't just his death and resurrection that's vicarious. It's all of Christ's life that is vicarious for us. And I think that this is, uh, this is the most overarching explanation for how Christ has accomplished our salvation. Everything from how he has redeemed what it is to be a human to how he has fulfilled the law perfectly. Uh, to how he has identified himself with us, even by going into the waters of baptism, how he's paid the penalty and overcome the power of sin by going to the cross, and how he is our second Adam, our, our heavenly man who rose again, the firstborn from the dead, so that in him we also would look forward to our resurrection, how he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and in him our lives are uh, are hidden with God, hidden in God. Um, that, to me, is the most beautiful way to think about 
how Christ has accomplished our salvation, his vicarious humanity and our union with him. Union that is not just imaginative or conceptual, but union that is actually real. Yeah, and, you know, we spent quite a bit of time going through that book. And I I mean, uh, I would just say that my understanding of what they're saying has been that they embrace the idea of the penal substitutionary atonement in the way yes. that I described it, but they are teasing out the implications of it and saying that the life that Christ lived, um, you know, was part and parcel. Uh, the death is atoning sacrifice was the culmination, the climax, the, mm-hmm. the end point, however you want to describe it. Uh, and so, um, you know, he lived this wonderful life for us and they, it's it's a pa- the pastoral value of looking at it that way is that the power of God, the grace of God, can be released into our day to day lives. It, that that's what it remind it, you know it reminds us of the fact that the grace of God toward us is not just limited to my salvation experience and the fact that I'm not going to hell, but I'm going to heaven mm-hmm. and so on. It's not just limited to that, but Christ wants to come in and in part, some people call it the exchanged life. You know, he, he was sin so that I, he who knew no sin became sin for me so that in him I might become the righteousness of God, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. So that's, you know, the life I now live is not my life, but the life that Christ lives in me, Galatians 2, and so on. That I live the life of Christ. You and I can live the life of Christ by his grace, released through the atonement, but it, it, it affects our whole life. I think the authors of that book are addressing what they perceive as a shortfall in evangelical thinking, which sometimes we think, you know, salvation really is just that decision we make for Christ that sets us free, and we do understand that. But Christ came to live, even as he lived a life, he wants us to live a life as well. And I and I think that's a great pastoral message. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, I would, I would just be t- tempted to take it a step further and go, there, there is no, there is no penal substitution without vicarious humanity. Unless I am joined to him by faith, um, and his all of his life is attributed to me, including his death and his resurrection, um, then it it has no bearing on me. And so, kind of similar to I think we had a conversation several weeks back about the order of salvation, and how a lot of times in evangelical circles. You know, we, we look at, well, first comes justification and then comes sanctification and so on and so forth. Whereas I think what these guys would say is, first and foremost, you are joined to Christ and Christ is your justification uh, because he was justified by God when he was raised from the dead. Christ is your sanctification. He is your holiness. So there's almost no, experientially, of course, there is an order, but uh, theologically, it's it's all of Christ for all of life, all at once when you're joined to him. Right. And everything that is his is yours. 
there's something I, you know, that I've been teaching a lot and emphasizing that this sanct this the problem is this Christians we think justification is by grace and sanctification is we got to work at it. See, there's right. the moralism coming in, right? Whereas actually, what Christ did for us in His life, culminating in His in His uh, sacrifice on the cross, was to release the life of God into us so that we can live the life of God by grace, obviously, not by our moralism. So that sanctification, you know, our progress in grace, our Christ-likeness, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, however you want to look at it, is actually the gift of God. The, practically, we tend to say that, you know, we, we understand the gifts of the Spirit are given by God. You know, you can't prophesy or have miraculous things happen in your life unless God does them. But we look at the fruit and we think, oh, well, that's just something that we have to work at. But no, the fruit of the Spirit are a gift of grace. Right. As in Christ, else, we just have, but we do have to receive that and say, yes, Lord, I want your Holy Spirit to work, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on in me. And I think the receptivity is is the really key part. It's And to make that really practical, it, I think it is the belief in things like, as I spend time with God in prayer and in his word, Christ is sanctifying me, that he is producing in me love mm -hmm. and joy and peace and patience. As I submit to uh, the body of Christ and live as a disciple, there is something supernatural that happens in that process that Christ is sanctifying me. And so I think that's that's kind of the key turn right there that people have to understand is that he is it is it is the gift of God given to you in Christ. And you submit to that reality by participating in the things that Christ has given to you. When you even take communion, you're not just eating uh, bread and, and drinking some wine. There is a supernatural thing that happens by participating, when you obey Christ's command to go into the waters of baptism, there is a supernatural thing that takes place. He is sanctifying us in all of those activities. And so we participate, like you say, uh, but in the participation is the gift of God given to us in Christ, our sanctification, our holiness, our redemption. God is good. Somebody say amen. So that's our conversation, our short and there's a sweet, and there's a whole lot more that could be said about this, um, but we're going to end there today. And if you're listening to this before Easter, happy Easter, everybody. If you're listening to it after, I hope you had a wonderful Easter weekend. And I hope that you will find yourself in church every single Sunday that you possibly can, because Christians belong in the body of Christ. Once again, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Good Theology our newsletter at fastpodcast.io. We love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks, David.